Welcome to Remember, a podcast about building community. I'm Carla Salter. This is the second part of my interview with King County Council Member Larry Gossett. We can't figure out where we're going until we understand, remember where we've been. And what I love about Larry Gossett is his deep connection to his city's history and his continued commitment to engage in the present and work toward a better future for all. He had specifically asked to talk about his neighborhood, which is the Central District in Seattle, and how the community has been impacted by gentrification. But unfortunately, by the time we got to the topic, we really weren't able to cover it adequately. Even so, he does a great job of personally framing the issue. How economic and social forces, like migration from the South and redlining, resulted in the isolation, suffering, and neglect of Black people in Seattle, but that also formed a community. And how economic and social forces have caused gentrification and displacement of that same community. A couple of notes. At the end of the conversation, he mentions an organization called El Centro. For those of you who didn't listen to the first part of this discussion, he is referring to El Centro de la Raza, which is a community organization founded by his good friend, also a member of the Gang of Four, which you'll learn about in the first interview, the late Roberto Maestas. El Centro recently opened 110 units of affordable housing on Beacon Hill. Later this month, I will talk with Estela Ortega, who was the wife of Roberto and current, is the current director of El Centro, about the path to building that housing. And finally, as I mentioned at the beginning of the first interview, the city was doing some sewer work directly outside the Gossett's front door, so you will hear some loud vehicles and tools in the background during our conversation. My apologies. So with that, I bring you part two of my conversation with King County Council Member Larry Gossett. Since the podcast is focusing on community, I really want to talk about your neighborhood, the Central District, right. which has figured prominently in your life. You've lived mm-hmm. here most of your life, and it's one of the neighborhoods you represent on the King County Council. Yes, ma'am. So can you talk about what the Central District community has meant to you? It's home. Capital H, capital O, capital M, and capital E for me and my family. I come from a classical African-American family in that like most black families that migrated to northern cities, the manner in which my family migrated to Seattle is very, very similar. My mother's older sister's husband got a job up here in 41, and they moved out of East Texas because they wanted to get rid of the racial terror in that extremely low wages that black people got down there and lack of any power. So he moved up here, he got a job, and then he sent for Edita, my mother's oldest sister. Then daddy and mama were still in Nickton, Texas. Uh, Nickton's the only town in the country named, official name is Niggatown. But the blacks that live there call it Nickton because we're very creative with our, with our names and stuff. The cotton fields around there is where my daddy and mama could make some money. But they did. They were freshmen at Texas College in Tyler, Texas. 
when they moved up here. Okay. They had a little education. But it was her mother, it was her big sister that said, you guys should come. At first, they didn't, my parents did not pay any attention to it. They wanted not finish school. But in the summer of 1944, my daddy was working in cotton fields and he was picked 150 pounds, he told us later, years later. And the white man only gave him a dollar and it was supposed to be a dollar fifty. Mm. And he said something. And the guy he me said, Boy, if you said another word, your ass is mine. And Daddy looked at him and but Daddy was big, but he was black in Southeast Texas. He might have disappeared. So he didn't say nothing. So then the next day another letter came from her sitting in and he said, Johnny, let's go. Yeah. So that is how we uh, came to Seattle, and then he in turn invited and encouraged Kajol, and both his brother and sister eventually moved up here in 48 and 49, and then my mother, uh, sister was here, so she became the second, and then she moved her other two, she got four other girls besides her, five girls, the other two girls moved to Seattle, okay. and that's classic of how these big black families so that was the Carters and the Gossets and there's a whole lot of descendants of us that live in Seattle. Mm-hmm. Now, that's how we got to Seattle. So that's why I tell you this is home because all the peoples that I know most about are up here in the north, although there's still a lot down in the south, but I don't get down there uh, very often. And the image that Seattle is God's country, that it is a racial oasis, is much more believed by whites than it is by blacks. Even though the blacks from the South thought it was much better for themselves and their families to live up here, they knew about the racism uh, that existed here. But they stayed and they survived and they they thrived in a sense that they reproduced and made the best of their new Situation. My daddy got had six kids uh, by 1955, and we were still living in High Point okay. housing projects. But he got a, a best job he'd ever gotten, a blue collar job, but it was as a mailman. So High Point is in West Seattle. Oh, so yeah, High Point the- a housing project in West Seattle. So my dad got hired by the uh, West Seattle Post Office as a mailman in 55. So he was excited. He said, oh, Johnny, we're going to make it now. I'm making good money, even though we had six kids. I, know, I still don't know how he made it, but he did it. Because by the time I was a freshman at the University of Washington, my daddy was still a mailman at the post office. From the time, how was I in 55, 10? So nine years later, he was still at the post office. That was a pretty good job, but he had six kids. This cat paid my tuition every quarter for the first two years of college mm-hmm. and bought my books. But anyway, later in 1975, when I did a survey with Mike, Dr. Mike Williams, who was an economist, uh, we found that 43% of the black people that reside in Seattle, Washington are descendants of blacks from Texas mm-hmm. and most of the others from Louisiana and Arkansas. The logic being that those are the southern states closest to the West Coast. Mm-hmm. So I think that the figures that I just shared with you are probably similar to the blacks who landed in Los Angeles, San Francisco, 
Oakland and Portland, Portland. Mm -hmm. as well as Seattle. And then 55, Daddy wanted to live out there. But the realtor told him, this is the first time that he actually talked much about racism, told him that getting a house in West Seattle outside of High Point is not a realistic option for a Negro. So they, two different realtors told him that we only can show you houses in the central area. Okay. And that's the way it was. So we moved to the central area. Black people didn't have no choice even up here in Seattle. When Martin Luther King came here in 1961, he said to Seattle now, when he spoke to the student body at Garfield, and that's where I was going to school then, he said that Seattle, Washington is now the fifth most segregated city in all the land. And I'm here to talk about the need for open housing. People should be able to live where they want. We kind of, as students, yeah, people should be able to live, but we weren't real conscious that we were forced mm -hmm. to live in the center because we didn't know about covenants that exist in all the other neighborhoods and all that. Uh, but of course, we were inspired by Martin Luther King's business school. But I brought that up to you so you know that segregation was a fact of life up in these northern cities as well as down south. It's just more subtle up here. I mean, it seems to me that it's two sides of the same coin because on the one hand, segregation and redlining and all that has extremely negative impacts on, on black people and people yeah, of color. Yeah, never could get a, a loan to fix up uh, our house at 1803 East Alder. And, you know, I admit it to people, it's because of the reality. Never were we able to successful to get rid of the rats. Because a big old house and there were some holes underneath the house that they were coming through. Daddy didn't have the money to completely rebuild the bottom of our house right. so they couldn't get in. Right, so you end up with these kinds of problems, with these kinds of concentrations of people who are suffering, there's no investment, but you also end up with yeah. with a community. Yeah, that's, and that, that's what you were pointing out. We, that, especially in a place like Seattle, you couldn't otherwise find because there's so few black people. Right. Uh, so I want to know what what the community meant to you, and I want to know yeah. about the changes, and then i got to ask you a few more okay. questions about that. Okay, well, let me just spend a couple minutes on that. The reason I started off this section of our discussion with spelling home with all capitals, despite everything we've talked about, me going to segregated schools, Horseman Elementary School was 98.6% black when I went there, 56 55, 56, and 57. Washington was 70% black when I went there in 58, 57, 58, 59. Garfield was 55% black when I went there in 60, 61. Why was this home, despite the segregation and everything, even though it was segregated, it was still home in the sense that when I walked through the center in 57 and 63, in 61, excuse me, because that's the year I moved out of the center of the Beacon Hill. Man, we didn't do no crazy stuff because other people, the Roosevelt's, the Hammonds, their parents would say, Larry, cut that shit out before we I whip you behind. That's Hammond's daddy. Or Roosevelt saying, I'll take y'all to the game because your daddy ain't called me and said he's not going to get home. And I say, yes, sir. 
we had community of black people that that watched over us, took care of us. We didn't think about talking back to our elders. And these folks would go to school uh, with us. We were trying to keep, by way of example, a new black family moved to High Point, or I mean the Century, and then they want to automatically put their child in Pacific School, which was this nothing wrong with Pacific School for slower. But they couldn't have possibly known in two days that this was a uh, a person that needed heavy uh, help with his reading and writing computation. As a matter of fact, he grew up to be a brilliant man. So the black families put pressure on school that should let him go to Washington High and then Garfield instead of Pacific. That's family. That's community. And then a lot of pride was taken in the fact that from 1957 to 62, uh, the 10, 11, 11, 12, and 13, 14-year-old basketball teams at the Rotary Boys Club on 19th and Spruce never, ever lost a basketball game. These boys, I mean we, yeah. were bad and beat all the whites. But our parents and stuff took pride. We didn't have a lot of other stuff to be proud of. We weren't on no city council or, or had any big corporate jobs. Uh, my daddy, by the time we moved to Central, took a janitorial job to help out his post office. But that was about it. But we still had community, and we got together and had fun on the weekends. And our parents got together and had fun. And we got rarely ever that I hear us talking about racism. We had community. And then tremendous pride in Garfield. Every year I was in high school, 61, 62, 63, Garfield won the state championship. But think about it. Those were the same little boys in 57, 58, 59 that had won the 11 to 14-year-old championship. Yeah. So community, sense of community existed. And and all of us had daddies. Most of us had daddies back then because they worked at semi-skilled and unskilled labor at industry like Bethlehem still, but they made enough to buy these little eleven to fourteen thousand dollar ghetto house and CD and a little ride. Right. Yes. That's why I call it Century Home, despite, you know, the bigger picture okay. issues that you and I talked about earlier. So I wanna to talk to you about what what's happening now with the central district and the changes what do you see do you see there being any solutions uh what i see going on now uh in the central besides displacement i like using the broader term of gentrification because mm-hmm. it's more uh encompassing of what is actually going on i don't know though carla if there is a readily available solution to the way gentrification works in a capitalist society because if you got money and you don't have a history of being redlined out of being able to get loans to purchase houses so what's happening now is that we have a, a lot of black families that had to move out one reason is because elderlies were the head of the household and when the property value went from being worth 200000 to 500000 just the taxes alone went from uh, 1700 to 4800 yeah. Can't pay them. Yes. 
Okay, and then when our people moved out of the CD where you and I still live, because our incomes are a little higher, they only have the choice of going out in the suburban parts of mm-hmm. South King County that's far farther away from the centrality of the economic system the in this county. Yeah, the access I went down. There's no cultural history around Federal Way High School, Wren High School, like there is around Garfield and Franklin. So the sense of belonging and pride in history is gone. My granddaughter, Nicole, I think she's in there, uh, in her sleep now. She's proud of the fact that I'm a third generation uh, Bulldog. Mm-hmm. And uh, in her, in her uh, essay to go to college, she said that, you know, my my mother and her two brothers went to Garfield and graduated. My granddaddy went to Garfield, mm-hmm. you know, and now I'm graduated from there. And then I was able to get into honors and AP because we had the Wise College program and all this kind of stuff. That's community. But we're all scattered out now. Now, I don't know, Carla, if anything short of what we were trying to do in the 1960s will change that the prospect for more, more blacks getting decent housing fit for the shelter of human beings. That was a term that the Black Panther Party used to uh, use. And our housing situation is much worse than it was when the Black Panther Party yeah. arrived in Seattle in 1968. It's much worse um, now. 46% of the young people in Seattle, Washington, under the age of uh, 28, who uh, are homeless on the street are black. In a city that's only 9 or 10% black under the age of 28. That's some tough going. And it's still from the heritage and legacy of horrific racial discrimination uh, in the North and the South. Despite all the changes, it's still very rough, very difficult uh, for uh, black people to make it. And that's why we have to figure out new and more innovative ways of organizing across racial and geographic lines mm-hmm. as we move toward uh, 2020, if we were to have hope of improving the devastation route by things like gentrification, because we don't have the power to resist it much here. Except for the example I gave you at El Centro. Yes. But those are just little examples. Well, that's the thing. It's like these economic forces are continuing to accelerate and... Yeah. Because economic forces dictate who has access to housing, you only have yeah you only have things like El Centro that are community based. So I wanted I know I would love to talk to you forever, but I know you have to go. So I'd like to maybe end on a positive note. Tell me about the housing that was named for you. Um, I'm proud of the fact that in um, about 2010, the Low Income Housing Institute. We call it Lehigh, under the uh, leadership of the incomparable, effective housing developer named Sharon Lee, gave me the honor, she and her board of directors, of naming their latest, this is 2010, their latest housing development after me. It is a 62-unit complex located on 47th and 12th Avenue Northeast in the University District that is now 
the only housing for homeless people that's non-transitional, meaning if you take care of business, try to keep yourself halfway together, and you were previously homeless, you can stay there until you go to the happy hunting ground. That's what it means. So it's long-term housing. Yeah, long-term housing. housing for formerly homeless people. 12 units of couples uh, and 50 units for single. And uh, it's about 30% black. I like that. And I'll be going out there. Ron and I always go out there for Thanksgiving uh, dinner. Okay. As you know, you're one of my great heroes, and I just want to thank, thank you. you for your time and for your for your wisdom. Thank you. I appreciate it, sister.